Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, and today's podcast will be on healing arthritis and autoimmune diseases without drugs. Whenever I turn on the TV, whether it's to a news or sports program, it seems like every commercial break, there's another ad from a pharmaceutical company on a new medication for arthritis. I'm talking about the Enbrels, the Humeras, the Cosyntex. You can't miss them. The ads typically show uh, either a famous golfer like Phil Nicholson teeing off after he's just taken his medication, or even an everyday mom who would typically have difficulty opening up a jar of peanut butter to make a sandwich for her children, and then you see her after taking the medication having no problem at all. Both ads are poignant and uplifting in a way, but is that the only way to get better? We all know that medications have side effects. The old-time medications like Advil or Aleve, while they are effective, are known to cause long-term complications such as damage to the stomach lining or even strokes. And the new medications that I mentioned before are called biologics. They're very powerful. They also have side effects as well, and they can suppress the immune system and make a person more vulnerable to infection. And they don't work in 50% of the people. And boy, are they expensive, thousands of dollars a month for treatments. Well, my guest today, Dr. Susan Blum, has been working her whole medical career on finding more natural treatments for arthritis and other autoimmune conditions. Dr. Blum is a clinical assistant professor at the Icon Mount Sinai School of Medicine. She's also a member of the Dr. Oz Advisory Board, and she's been a leader, along with Mark Hyman and David Perlmutter, in the functional medicine movement that's been promoting holistic gut-based treatment for disease. She is the author of The Immune Recovery Plan, and her second book, Healing Arthritis, are both terrific sources of solid, natural ways to get healthier. Dr. Blum and I have known each other since our days as medical interns in New York City, and though our paths diverged for about two decades, we reconnected in the past few years and realized how much we had in common in treating our patients. I was fortunate to visit Dr. Blum recently at her private office in Westchester at Blum Health. It is a magnificent office, very futuristic with all its common colors and its amazing layout, along with a large kitchen where she teaches patients how to cook to heal themselves. So without further delay, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Susan Blum to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Thanks. Everything I said above is I'm, true. I'm sure we connect after all these years. It is. Well, <laughs> well, that was actually the first thing I was going to go to because I was curious. I, I know my path, and I've mentioned it sometimes on the podcast, but when did you decide? Because, again, we trained together as interns in New York City at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I ended up going That's into crazy. infectious disease and immunology and a lot of different ways. And, and there were later on people that influenced my path into holistic medicine, but I was curious for you if there was this moment where you said, I think there's a better way, or was there a doctor that influenced you to go 
in this direction? Well, you know, I, you know, and certainly in those days, the hospital you and I were at was both public and private, but we had a lot of public, you know, the mm-hmm. days of, of those, you know, three days on kind of crazy days. And I don't know that there was one person, but I think for me what happened was it was very overwhelming, the sense of frustration, more about chronic disease. I know you talk about the AIDS epidemic. I mean, that influenced me too. That sort of scared the Jesus out of me a little bit in terms of our exposure back then. I mean, it was really a scary time to be practicing medicine in the hospitals because we didn't really know how to treat it and we were exposed to blood and everything and all those things. But I think for me, it was more about the person with the heart attack or the diabetes or the chronic diseases that were in the different, you know, hospital rooms and the sense of frustration that I had that we were really seeing them at the end game, you know, at the very end of their process. And there was really nothing we can do. There was these algorithms, you know, here's what you do when someone comes in with a heart attack, here's what you do for diabetic, but it really wasn't addressing the root, the root cause. And I just, I looked around and I saw what the attendings were doing and what it would look like to stay in that process and be an internist and have a conventional sort of internal medicine practice. And I just felt that I wanted to go further upstream. I wanted to understand how people got there and understand what we could do to prevent them from getting there. And I ended up leaving internal medicine at that point and going to do my master's in public health at Columbia. You know, I just decided that I wanted to learn more about prevention and understand more about, you know, programs or how to sort of prevent disease and would brought me to explore a little bit of population-based medicine and understanding sort of the role of public policy and which was all interesting and all that. But after several years of doing that, I found myself back into clinical medicine because I wanted to get back to patients. But I really, I ended up in a preventive medicine residency at Mount Sinai, which was very interesting, but it was really still focused on It was really focused on early detection. So in the conventional arena, as you remember, more so than maybe than now, it was really focused on immunization projects. Right. Mammographies and pap smears, which is really not primary prevention. It's really secondary. They're early detection. Still, there was no focus at all, and there's still very little focus in, in the conventional world on nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, stress. You know, there's more of it now, but still, the medical students come out of medical school and still say they didn't learn much nutrition. I want to jump in for a second because it's really interesting what you're saying. And, you know, although I continued in, as I mentioned, in infectious disease and allergy and immunology, I, a few years into practice, I felt the same way you did. And I actually went out to Dr. Dean Ornish, who was getting well known at the time in the early 1990s about reversing heart disease. Exactly with yeah. what you're saying with nutrition, exactly. lifestyle changes, doing stress reduction. And I actually went through a program that he was doing for patients. I dragged along my wife who was pregnant at the time. She's also a physician like you are. <laughs> and she was ready to kill me. But watching what was going on there, my eyes opened to saying, gosh, there is a different way to treat chronic disease, especially like heart disease. And I came back. I wasn't the same doctor. And it sounds like right. you as well, sort of had this underlying drive. Right, what what drove you, what caused you to want to go there? Like what, because your frustration in in what you were seeing? Right. You know, when I went into practice, I immediately saw the limitations of what I could do. And again, we both, you know, we both worked in coronary care units in our our internship. Right. You know, we, obviously patients were stabilized and it's really critical to have those type of services. But again, for a patient to go out and not to really 
realize that his lifestyle or her lifestyle, whether it's not just diet, but as far as stress reduction, exercise, was critical. And, and as you pointed out, nobody really took the reins on that to guide the patients. I ended up at the Institute for Functional Medicine. So you went to Dean Ornish and you learned about his program and that was eye-opening and life-changing for you. And, right. and I, I totally get that. And I wish I had been able to do that too back then. But what I ended up doing was I found the Center for Mind-Body Medicine that was doing amazing work training health professionals in mind-body medicine and the importance of stress, how it affects the body, and teaching how to teach work with yourself and teach your patients tools to manage stress. And then I ended up second right after that with the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is really at the heart of it, a nutritional medicine, food is medicine kind of place, but also about root cause. Go upstream, find out what's causing the problem and treat that. And that just really appealed to me. I felt like I won the lottery, you know, when I went there. I was like, okay, that's what I always wanted to do. You know, now we're getting somewhere. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to point out to our listeners because I can't tell you how many times I run into people and they'll ask me, what is my specialty? And my specialty has evolved over the years. Originally, I did a lot of allergy in my practice and I still do a certain amount, but I really transitioned into what I'd call holistic medicine. But it's funny when I, a lot of people say, holistic medicine, you mean functional medicine? And I said, yes, I, you know, really, it's, there's similarities. And I think the acceptance of functional medicine I think that's what patients, in fact, are looking for in a lot of their doctors. And I just wanted to ask you, because I think one of the key tenets of functional medicine is that the gut is the key to the immune system. So I wanted to ask you, I was the first area I wanted to move into really based on your book, Healing Arthritis, was can you explain in some general terms and maybe specifics about the diet that you would recommend? Let's say a patient comes in to you and... Uh, is suffering with arthritis, and we're going to get into some points, whether they're on medication, whether they're off medication, as far as how you approach what dietary changes they should make. So ultimately, there's two different, when you think about food, there's like part one and part two that I think people have to understand. We all, you, you know, the internet is filled with all my colleagues out there, all the famous ones, you know, all my famous colleagues. As You're pretty well famous. As those You've famous. been on Dr. Oz a few times. We'll, we'll put you up there. <laughs> okay, okay. But, uh, you know, but I'm talking about people, even things like, you know, the autoimmune paleo and mm. ketogenic now and Gundry's plant paradox. And, you know, everybody has a diet now, right? And there's all these different diets and it's really, really confusing. And so there's so many different food plans. And so what I want people, before I give any specifics, I want to preface it by saying that we all believe, all of us, yourself, including me, and including all of my colleagues who have written all the books that everyone's reading, we all advocate some sort of therapeutic food plan. Yeah, and Terry Walls with MS. I mean, I'm just thinking of all everyone with all their food plans, right? We all advocate some sort of what we, and people need to think of it this way, a therapeutic food plan because it's not necessarily going to be forever, but it's what you're going to follow while you're still, while, while we're doing the healing work that we need to do on the rest of your body to help you get better. And so there's this therapeutic phase for, for the food plan, and it might be only for three months, it might be six months, it might be one year. For some people, the sickest people might need to follow it longer. But there's always the goal of moving towards a stable, balanced, food plan that you can live with, you know, that incorporates several things. And so I want to 
So let's just go there for a second. Well, you know, also, if you could, I just wanted to make sure we circle around. You want to do therapeutic first? Well, this is the part that I want to make sure that we cover because it's so important. It's one of the best yep. things about your book that you always have a plan in the book, which is what so many patients want. And I'm yes. just like glancing now, too, that, you know, you mentioned even in your book about foods that reduce inflammation. So maybe we could. So here's the thing. So in, arth- in healing arthritis, there's step one, two, and three. Step one is called the leaky gut diet for arthritis. Step two is healing the gut. And step three is finish what you started long-term six-month program. And so we'll come back to that. That's where I move people into, here's how to eat for the rest of your life kind of thing. Here's how to take this and move forward. But you always start with a therapeutic food plan. And I call it the leaky gut diet for arthritis. And why do I call it that? I call it that because if you have any inflammation in your body, especially arthritis, because I go through this in the book, for people like you, Dr. Mitchell, who are clinicians, for patients as, for patients and clinicians as well, I lay out the case and reviewed all the literature, which shows two things. The best way to the studies that look at food and arthritis and different diets, the studies that look at the relationship between a leaky gut, we call it, and arthritis, and the need to heal that leaky gut, right, in order to improve your arthritis and making those connections. And also the way to eat to have a healthy gut. So if we, if as you said, as we began, that it's really important that the immune, the immune system, the, the relationship between gut health and the immune system has become more and more clear. And you're really focused on that too. Well, if the gut is also connected to arthritis, then we have to heal the gut as a central foundational part of healing arthritis. And so while the gut, if we all accept, which I think we all need to, that there's, you have a leaky gut, while you have, that's why I call the diet, the leaky gut diet for arthritis, there are foods you're eating that are triggering inflammation. They just are because of the state of your gut. And so I take people, so what we do is for the therapeutic phase of the program, which is the first couple months, we remove gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, which are the most, have the, the kinds of annoying proteins in them that when your gut is leaky, slip through the gut and trigger inflammation in the body. They are just the most inflammation-prone foods, especially for someone with a damaged gut. And so you remove those foods. The other big foods that we remove are what we call the nightshade vegetables. I wanted to ask you about that. I was That was on my list because I've never known why the nightshades have been said to worsen arthritis. I don't know. Is there like some scientific explanation for that? Well, it sort of leads us into the discussion about lectins a little bit because the nightshades are very particularly high in lectins. I was at a functional medicine conference and up on the stage, there was a great debate going on between Terry Walls Gundry, I forget his first name, and Alessio Fisano, who's the father oh, yes, sure. of Leaky. He did yes, all the gut research. Yes, he's and really important. Gluten and he's a very gr- amazing guy who's like very Italian, right? And he right. has this great Italian accent. <laughs> and Gundry is, is like, no tomatoes. And, and, and Fisano's like, hmm. don't tell that to my grandmother, you know, kind of thing. I mean, it was just so funny. But they had this whole debate about... How, you know, Fasano said, well, you know, the old school Italian, like the other, gener- you know, in the generations past, we always peeled the tomatoes before we cooked them, you know. And so some of the practices of the way foods are prepared have really changed in our fast, sort of fast food society. That's a good point. Yeah. And that in the older generations, they actually soaked and sprouted and peeled mm-hmm. and prepared some of these foods in a way that really lowered the lectin content. So lectins are basically annoying compounds in different vegetables, in different plants that are basically, the plants have them to protect the plants from bugs and other animals. 
and other, you know, to, the, the protection for the plant, but they actually are irritating to our gut. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Okay, that's a great explanation. Yeah, because I know lectin, there's a special pathway in immunology that, in fact, the immune system gets activated. So, right. so that makes sense to me. Okay, because I always wondered that. So the lectin. So I, so the, I think the nightshades have a kind, a kind of lectin, or a, or just high levels of lectin. But I think it's related to lectin. Okay. You know, in my, right. from what I understand, and especially tomatoes. That's why tomatoes are so. The skin of tomatoes are very, very high in lectins. And anyone mm. out there who, you know, knows that tomatoes bother them, and the summer's coming, and you want to try. Taking the skin off, it's another way to test yourself to see if tomatoes bother you without the skin. Have you ever seen, though, when a page, interestingly, because I've seen this, you know, in, on occasion, like where somebody takes one of these foods out of their diet and they dramatically see improvement in their arthritis? Is that... all the, oh, my God, all the time. Really? I always pop okay. it into my head. And it's a food that you might not believe. Like I had yeah. this patient who had so much, she had arthritis and she had so much pain in her feet. She could not, she'd get out of bed in the morning, stand up and couldn't even stand because the balls of her feet were in so much pain. The food that did that for her was corn. Wow. She took all the corn out, it went away, and when she tried when it, when she ate corn as a test to see if, you know, at the end of so we always do these experiments, right? So remove all the foods for 3 to 6 weeks and then at the end of those that period of time just to see if those are culprits for you, you test each one. And she tested corn, and she couldn't walk the next day. Wow. I think patients have to appreciate what you're saying in the sense that, because a lot of times also they come to me and they want me to allergy test them, and there's not necessarily a specific test. I mean, the test is real life. Would you agree, I mean, in your experience? Yes, and right. And here's the other thing I want to say about that is exactly right. When, when you do a test, there's a couple of really important points here. When you do a blood test, you're only looking at one little pathway you know, that we've identified is a, is a potential pathway for a, a, how a food can trigger inflammation in the body or an immune response. We, there's, there's probably thousands of pathways. And even if we have like 10 or 15 different kinds of tests, we can do that still not all of the different ways. And so, so there's a tremendous benefit to doing the experiment on yourself. And it's because, A, yes, there's pathways we, can't even, we don't even have science to test yet. B, it's really important to give someone an aha moment. I call it the aha moment, right? Because if someone gets a blood test and you tell them, you know, you really shouldn't eat these foods, and they don't even know what it's doing to them, a lot of people struggle with being, I hate the word compliant, but you know, but, I, but really being 100% and following that. Like that patient of mine, if I just told her not to eat corn because I, you know, I believed it would be an issue or a test showed it, she might not be as vigilant with really removing corn, but that when she discovered that she couldn't walk the next morning after eating corn, that gave her this aha that hit home for her and enabled her to follow a plan that isn't, frankly, easy to do, to walk around to make sure you don't have corn in any of your food. And so I think that um, giving people that, that experience really allows them to stick with a plan. Yeah, I think there's a huge value in... Also, elimination diet and rotation. I just want to yes. make clear for listeners, too, like you eliminate a food you're concerned about or working with your doctor. And then as a yes. test, and some people can sometimes even tolerate it after that, they rotate it every fourth day because essentially the body processes it out. Right. You know? Right. Okay. Exactly. Every day or two. And the, which just reminded me, as you said that, to one last point about elimination diets. A lot of people say, oh, you know, I, it's so hard to remove all those foods. Can't I just take out 
gluten for now. And so here's the analogy, and I'm sure you've heard of this one. There's a couple of different versions of this, but the way I like to say it is we call it the rule of tax, right? So if you're sitting on four tax and you have pain, you know, in current society, right, we're taking we're taking Advil or painkillers to numb the pain, and that's sort of the downstream medicine approach. Okay, just take something for pain. In functional medicine, we're trying to find where all those tacks are in the body and pull them out, get rid of those tacks, and then the pain goes away. If you have four different foods that are triggering inflammation, and you just remove one of them, so let's say somebody's sensitive to gluten, dairy, and corn. We'll just say three tacks, right? Gluten, dairy, and corn. I say, go home on a gluten-free diet for three weeks and let me know how you're doing. And they go home and they come back, they say, that gluten doesn't matter. I didn't feel a difference. I didn't feel anything different. And I took it out, I added it back, no change. Well, you can see why, because if you still have those other two tacks, you're not going to have any pain relief from just removing only one. So we always say you need to remove all five of those foods, gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, all at once. Those are the five most common tacks. You need to do them all, and then you slowly reintroduce them one at a time, you know, because people will say, well, how do you know which one is the problem? You'll know because then you slowly, every three or four days, eat one and challenge your body, and you'll see which one triggers the symptom. So the data collection part where you really learn is in part two when you add the foods back. And so the book gives you really good instructions for how to go through the whole leaky gut diet for arthritis, and so you remove all those foods. But while you're doing that, we work on healing the gut. And because the goal is to be able to reintroduce a lot of those foods later on. What I want to get to, too, because I know sometimes people hate all the restriction part. What are the, some of the, you mentioned in the book, some of the good foods that decrease inflammation? You mentioned like colorful fruits and veggies, but can you give some examples of things that you would say normally patients, make sure you get into your diet? Yeah, and so this is actually why I had initially been thinking, oh, I'll just tell you the way I want you to eat. And so, because... Honestly, the way you want to choose to eat in a way that is lifelong, that right away as you start doing the elimination diet, that you start focusing on health-promoting foods. And the kinds of foods you want to focus on are foods that support good gut health, the foods that, that feed those good bacteria, right? And so because ultimately you want to heal your gut, and healing the gut means promoting really healthy microbes that, that, that ferment the food and make these things called short-chain fatty acids, which heal the leaky gut. And so those are plants. You know, it's really all plants. I mean, except nightshades we took out, but it's really all other plants. You know, gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs. So we take out soy, we take out corn. Those are two plants that we avoid with the nightshades, but everything else is plant-focused. The superfoods that they need to know. I mean, because you always hear about all these superfoods. I mean, avocado, is that that really important? Avocado, okay. So here's the thing. I think that you want to focus anti-inflammatory. You want to focus on healthy fats. And so this is where I would encourage people to stick with the good old olive oil and not go crazy with coconut oil. I've been watching all my people with high cholesterol levels going up on you too. Well, I'm, I'm, what I'm worried about is, you know, Mike Royzen actually, who was on Dr. Oz, made it, he was having a whole big debate with Mark Hyman, and he was saying, you know, look in the laboratory, and I've heard this before about peanut oil as well. Peanut oil and yeah. coconut oil are what they feed to, you know, the mice or whatever, too, when they try to induce atherosclerosis or heart disease. So I'm very right. concerned about that. I think on avocados which are, and olive oil, which are what we call monosaturated yeah. fats, are, exactly. you know— what really so I was going to come back to this. Yeah. Well, yes, avocado. Yes, 
olive oil, but I've also turned against coconut oil. It's mm-hmm. okay sometimes, you know, but I've been watching my, I have somebody who just came in with her cholesterol went from like 240 up to, she's over 300 now. And without me knowing, she had decided to try doing a ketogenic diet and has been drinking, using like tablespoons of coconut oil for the past couple, like three to four months. Yeah. And her cholesterol just steadily marched up. It doesn't mean everybody's cholesterol will respond that way, but you don't know if you are that person where it will. And so some people I think genetically will just that's the, the you know not that's why it. they so, really should work with their doctor or obviously a, yes, a really well-trained exactly. functional nutritionist because again yeah when people they hear so much they're bombarded on you know on television and ads and about the latest diet i mean i think you may agree with me also it, it seems like the mediterranean diet still is the one that holds the most water after all of these things. Well, that's things. what I was going to come back to, actually, because when you talk about the studies that show, so when I talk about the long-term finish what you started six-month program, after you do your, your leaky gut diet for arthritis and you start reintroducing foods, and even as I explain the leaky gut, it's in the foundation of a Mediterranean diet. So the studies are really, 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 really good looking at studies on rheumatoid arthritis and the Mediterranean diet rheumatoid arthritis, vegetarian, and plant-based and vegan diets. Now, I'm not telling everyone they need to be a vegan or vegetarian. Mediterranean diet is it's a plant-forward kind of way of eating. It's whole foods. There's definitely some fish. There's a lot of nuts and seeds. There's tons of olive oil. But there's a component of the Mediterranean diet that is when you said the superfood and, like, what do people want? It's this new magic category that everyone's talking about called polyphenols. And it's in olive oil, polyphenols is a phytonutrient. It's like what's in the plant that's actually biologically active. And one of the things polyphenols do, which is, and it's in seeds and nuts and berries and plant, you know, and olives. And and so polyphenols and legumes, even lentils and polyphenols induce genetic, they change the genetic expression of your gut microbes. So they make your gut microbes sparkle and be happier and healthier in addition to being potent antioxidants themselves. And so they mop up all the free radicals and they induce healthy behavior in all your gut microbiome. And so we love polyphenols. And it turns out the Mediterranean diet is really, really rich in polyphenols. And it's it's really a plant-forward diet. And there's limited meat, they eat meat, but in limited amounts. There's some goat dairy and sheep dairy, but in limited amounts. And there's definitely lots of fish and a lot of plants. I like to call it the biblical diet. I tell patients this because, right, it's perfect the time of Passover and Easter. I said if Moses or Jesus had accessibility to these kind of foods, it probably was a good food. So I I agree with you. I think that these foods that are high in the monounsaturated fats, you know, and also the nuts and seeds, walnut, flax seeds, all these type of things are really overall very healthy. And you're right, too. I mean, again, we have such access to food today, which they didn't, obviously, back in biblical times. I mean, you were lucky if you, you, know, you killed an animal and you had a little meat for a couple of days. You know, but the rest of the time, you were foraging on you know, plant-based foods that were available at that time. So I agree with you. I think there right, is something to it. Right, with a little bit it. of animal here and there. And there's also a lot of periods of fasting, you know, right, where people didn't right. eat all day long and all night, you know. And so fasting's good for the body also. That's a good point. And so, you know, this 12-hour overnight fast, I really promote people to have 12, 14 hours even, you know. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, so I think that I do do that in the book because I really, people feel very deprived when you only focus on what we're taking out. I really start with, here's what you're going to eat. You know, you can eat a lot of healthy fats. 
and I define what they are and why based upon studies. There's really good studies about fish oil and arthritis and, you know, nuts and seeds and why they're good for you. And there's really good studies looking at turmeric, you know, and curcumin, like as an herb, you know, yeah, we're gonna, well, that's our, You're segueing into our next thing. But before we leave to go to the herbs, because that's also a big part of your book, which I think is really important. What do you feel about this whole thing about alkaline and acidity in the diet? You know, I, I think you mentioned the book. Oh, I really believe in that. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so... So cool, okay, because it really aligns with what we know about the studies of, that show positive, the most positive food plans, which are Mediterranean, vegetarian, and vegan, right, from a cardiovascular prevention viewpoint as well as, as, well as a gut health and detox-supporting way of eating. Alkaline, what happens is, and I can just tell you my own experience, you know, I, have, I was struggling with kidney stones, and what ended up getting rid of my kidney stones was eating an alkaline diet because what happens is, and what does this mean? This means that when you, it's not like people think, oh, I'm eating tomatoes, it's acid. It's like there's that dropping acid diet for, for reflux. Right. That's not what we're talking about. We're yeah. talking about the food you eat gets metabolized in your body and it either increases the acid load, moving your body just a little bit towards what we call metabolic acidosis, which is the pH drops just a little fraction and there's, a, there's extra acid circulating around your body, or it helps increase the base, we call it, which makes you a little more alkaline. And all of your enzymes in your body function better. I actually did research on this for the book. Really, try, There aren't a lot of studies actually no. looking at alkalinity. It's more like very basic science work that's being done, looking at measuring in like kidney you know, literature because the kidneys have to manage your, your pH, right, your alkaline and acid, because what right, happens is... Right. If you eat, so actually, let me back up. So when you eat foods, what promotes acid? Think about the word amino acid. It's the building blocks of protein. So all protein brings in an acid load because you metabolize it, you, metabolize it, you make amino acids, and it's sort of an acid. It is an acid. It makes you a little bit more acidic. The most alkaline foods are plants. And, you know, so as a general rule, even... Even legumes, like soy, is actually a more acid-producing kind of a protein, whereas lentils are more alkaline. So legumes are sort of a little bit in the spectrum of some of them are more acid and some are more alkaline. Yeah, I think what's important, what you're pointing out too, you know, again, I think this is one of the bigger problems with the Atkins diet. Yes, people lose weight, but they tend to have a very high protein load because they're eating so much, you know, meat in place of plant-based foods and ammonia builds up. I think you even pointed that out in the book. So I, I think, you know, and we know that a high acidity increases inflammation, also probably causes kidney issues and stuff like that. Yeah, because, right, coming to that exactly, what happens is when you, so when you eat foods that promote high acid, they're also the same kinds of foods that promote inflammation. So the other things that are very acid are flour products, right? So baked goods, processed wheat flour, you know, so all of those sort of, you know, all of those kind of processed foods, right? And so, and dairy and, you know, especially cow and especially liquid like milk and ice cream. And so you have like these things that we're all eating in the modern American diet and they dump this huge acid load. And what, how does your body have to deal with that is you have to buffer it somehow. And so the kidneys work extra hard to buffer it. And that's the other big discussion in the osteoporosis world is that the calcium, you know, your bones are a big buffer system. That's right. They hold all your minerals and they're, they're there to sort of buffer everything. And so when you have a lot of acid that you're eating or high acid load, your urine becomes more acidic. And you can actually, people can go to a CVS pharmacy and get urine pH strips 
And those of you who are listening, go to the pharmacy, get these strips. And this is actually how I work with my osteoporosis patients is I have them work on eating a more alkaline diet and to check their urine pH, the strip, to see how well they're doing. And the more alkaline you are, you want to be over 7.5 in your urine because it, when your urine is acidic, the kidneys drop the, um, dump the acid to try to get it out of your body and it takes calcium with it. And so you can actually measure a 24-hour urine for calcium and see that it's lower when you have a more alkaline diet. And so you're not losing all your calcium through your urine. And so That's a great this point. is actually, I've yeah. been working with patients this way for a very long time, actually. That's a great point. What do, how do you feel about the alkaline water? That's also been a little bit of the craze lately. People are buying these I know. Well, what do you think about that? Well... I think it's probably good to have slightly alkaline water. I mean, I know also actually Evermore, Dr. Kaufman, who wrote that dropping acid, she was a big proponent of that. And obviously, you know, actually, it's owned by Dr. Oz. <laughs> but I think it's probably a good idea. I don't know if I would go so crazy. I think, again, too, going back to what you're saying, you can get through good fruits and vegetables, naturally alkaline food. So I don't think you have to be drinking 10 glasses of alkaline water a day. I'm not sure that's the answer. Right. Yeah, I mean, I worry about but, it. You no, know, but some bit. of the bottled waters yeah. that you get, by the way, I mean, I, I hate to like throw any negatives here, but like the Sani, I can't even drink those bottled water. They're too acidic. They're putting too many minerals or other things in them, and I, I taste it. So I think you know people could look it up online. There are some of the bottled waters, I believe, like Aquapana, Evermore, and I think even Poland Spring tend to be a little bit more on the alkaline side. So, but I, I want to get your opinion on that too. I mean, because we yeah, also well, so so yeah. So my biggest concern about that is that you know when you let's come back to the gut microbiome for a second, okay. right? And this whole idea that of stomach acid and the importance of having a really low pH in the stomach. So when we talk about for those of people listening, and we've been focusing on the need to heal the gut, have a healthy gut microbiome, and the relationship between a healthy gut and our inflammation and arthritis and immune function, right? All things that are important for anti-aging and preventing chronic disease. We want to really have a healthy gut microbiome. And so the whole, if you think about a river, you know, everything starts upstream. It all starts with what you eat, your mouth, then you swallow it, it goes into your stomach. The stomach is supposed to be a sterilizing container, pH 1.5. You're supposed to be really, really, really acid. It's supposed to sterilize everything you eat. Otherwise, you'll have a chronic sort of immune load on the body, an infectious load. There's, there's live things in all the food we eat that carries along in the food. And so you're supposed to sterilize it in your stomach. And the acid that comes out of the stomach sort of stimulates digestion. So you digest your food really well, and then you can absorb all those nutrients that you want to do in order to detox well and have good energy, you know, again, all those great anti-aging things. You want to absorb all your minerals and nutrients and vitamins. And the other thing a really acid pH does in the stomach is it heads downstream into the intestines and it prunes the garden. So if we think of your sort of 100 trillion bacteria in the gut, the microbiome, it's always at, you know, it always can be a little renegade. There are forces that could cause it to overgrow, whether it's stress or medication you're on or steroids, those sorts of reasons why there could be overgrowth of, of candida or yeast or chronic parasites or too much bacteria, this thing called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And one of the ways you protect against that is by having the good acid load coming out of the stomach downstream to prune the garden. 
I think what's really important, and I see it a lot in my practice, and I'm sure you do too, is that so many patients who suffer with either it's irritable bowel, some reflux, there are so many of them are on acid-suppressing medications. They're becoming right. more and more powerful, and this has a dramatic effect. The Nexiums, you know, the Prilosex, and, and even to some degree the, the Zantax and Pepsids. And I try to work as best I can to get my patients off of these, even using more natural things like baking soda, because as you're pointing out so really perfectly that if your stomach, which is the sterilizer of your food, if it becomes too alkaline from these medications, you're going to not be digesting your food properly, and that's going to cause a whole host of problems. So now what do you think about alkaline water when you think about it? Well, I think, I think that's gentle. I mean, that's what me- I worry right. about. If you, yeah, if you do really too much. If you pH water all the time, like, won't that affect your stomach acid? Yeah, I think you're right. I think your pH. Pe- people are going overboard with that. So I think here and there is okay, but like as the chronic thing all the time, I'd be worried, you know, concerned about the um, the changing, you know, altering of the of the pH. I think we should just dwell on this for a minute too. It's really important because so many people do suffer with reflux. You know, one of the things I once learned from actually from Dr. Kaufman in her book was interesting that, you know, the pain that you get sometimes in the stomach isn't that it becomes so acidic, even though that's what everybody thinks. It's because in the acidic environment, an enzyme called pepsin gets released that's the thing that irritates the stomach lining and actually causes the pain. So I think that, you know, again, overdoing it with the acid blockers for most patients is a mistake. We also know that it has so many side effects long-term by it, it inhibits the absorption of so many minerals and vitamins that people start getting more osteoporosis and there's just a, a whole host of issues there. So yeah, I think we're in pretty much agreement with that. You know, let's move on because I want to get to also some really important things that you mentioned about supplements. Now, for the average person listening, and I see this in my practice, people are all over the place with supplements. They spend hundreds of dollars a month picking and choosing, not really knowing what they should take. And you so clearly describe in your book, I mean, first you go to herbs to rebalance what you call dysbiosis or this imbalance in the microbiome. And you mentioned berberine, oregano oil, thyme oil, black walnut. Let's let's start with berberine for a second. Is that something that you find to be very important in helping heal, you know, this dysbiosis? First of all, I have to, like, it's really funny what's happening with berberine. You know, mm. berberine has become like the magic herb of the, of the decade for several reasons. It's been used extensively in um, as an ant- herbal antimicrobial in the gut, and has p- and has power against yeast as well as harmful bacteria and overgrowth. The interesting thing for berberine is that it spares a lot of the good bacteria, so it selectively targets the bad stuff while sparing the good stuff. So any program that I use usually has, well, really, if you go to all these different supplement companies and you look at all different things on the market, they usually have berberine you know, in their product. Like a lot of these things are mixed blends and berberine right. is always in there. So, so again, part of the benefit of berberine is it selectively targets the bad stuff while sparing the good stuff, you know, because some of these herbs will also kill off the good bacteria as well. So should it be done in, in a mix or should it be alone? I mean, because it sounds like it's very potent. I mean, as much as it's an herb. I usually do it as a mix. 
because I think herbs are good in synergy with each other. So I do usually do it as a mix. There are some products that are mostly berberine, you know, where berberine is the main thing, like Metagenics makes something called Candybactin BR that's really mostly berberine. I think it has some ginger and garlic in it, but like no other herb. And and I, and I definitely use that in rotation because sometimes you need to rotate things. And if people find that they are very sensitive to things, sometimes using a single formula like berberine only or mostly berberine can help you know if something doesn't agree with you, like if you get nauseous and vomit. You know, like some, or first of all, I, I have to preface this by saying that herbs are very unpredictable. 99% right. of people will feel. take these things and not have one problem. Other people might have a reaction, and you never know if you're that person. And so always start, so my advice to your listeners are, if you're listening to this and you're going to try these herbs, and I say this in the book very clearly, always start with the lowest dose, slowly work your way up over several days, start with one thing at a time, make sure it agrees with you. Um, if you get really bad nausea and vomiting, which is rare, 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 it's just like medication. You know, you just want to stop it. Just don't keep going. You know, and that particular herb might not agree with you. Berberine is one of the more well-tolerated. It's also really important that you mentioned in the book. I wasn't even aware of this that you have to you have to be very careful. Also, like in pregnancy, it can stimulate the uterus, yes. as you mentioned, right? Nursing, pregnancy, you don't want to take these herbs if you're taking another antibiotic. You ne- I never give herbs. I don't care what the herb is. Any of my patients that are trying to get pregnant or nursing, no herbs ever. You know, so unless your midwife tells you it's okay or your doctor or your, you know, your gynecologist or somebody advising you on herbs that are safe for pregnancy, I take everyone off. And so never, never, ever do the herbs during pregnancy. Yeah, and so I was just going to mention the last thing about berberine, and the reason why it's become this wonder supplement is because it's been now studied in as um, really good for blood sugar control. And so we're at high dose all by itself, berberine by itself. There's some alteration of the gut microbiome that happens that increases your sense of insulin sensitivity. So it actually takes you one step connection between the microbiome and cardiovascular disease and lowering risk and improving your whole, you know, insulin system and lowering your blood sugar. And so the role of the microbiome in that is is sort of neat. You know, the research that's coming out now and berberine seems to be an herb that interfaces in both those places together. So there's a lot of supplements out there now that are used berberine that's being used for the for diabetics, you know, or for people just that want that have insulin resistance or want to work on lowering their blood sugar. So that's berberine. And so all the, all the supplements always have berberine in it. I usually use combinations, especially when there's yeast, if there's also candida, I'll add oregano or like an oil, like an aromatic oil to the blend. But I think I would leave people with, you know, with when it comes to gut health, and this is what I talk about in the book, if you have inflammatory arthritis, that, you know, healing the gut is an ecosystem. The gut is not, this isn't a quick fix. You're not going to take a pill and make it all go away in two weeks. You really need to figure you're going to take these herbs and treat the gut for a month, you know, with these herbs, a month or even two, depending on how severe, for my severe rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis people, definitely two months. And then you pause for a while and you eat a healthy diet. You know, when I say healthy, I mean these foods that are good for the gut health, you know, Mediterranean, polyphenols, fiber, plants, some some fish, you know, limited animal. You know, when you talk about an alkaline diet, it's 30%. You want to eat, th- it's okay to eat protein, but it's 30%. An alkaline diet is 70% plants and 30% the more 
sort of animal, you know, foods that are more acid, you know, and protein-based. And so that's what the gut likes. The studies on long-term gut health are, you know, the, the ketogenic. And back to when you said, Dean, about your patient um, that was doing the ketogenic diet, um, or you mentioned about that and, and advocate, you know, that whole, or the, the discussion between Mark Hyman and Michael Royzen, you know, the, um, there's one thing to do ketogenic as a therapeutic plan for like a month. You know, if you don't, ketogenic, I have, we have cancer patients at Blum Center that we use ketogenic with. We use ketogenic for certain neurologic conditions, but for long term, for weight loss or just general health, there's no good evidence that that's a beneficial food plan. And so again, therapeutic diet, you want to try it. Long term, it's a Mediterranean diet, period. I agree with you. Right. I think it's, yeah, because we knew even in training, like people who are on, on ketosis, which is like almost like a, an acute diabetic stage, it, there's, there's potential dangers in it. All right. I'm going to move on to something, too. Now i got to put you on the spot. Okay. A patient comes to you. Well, actually, let's say it's going to be a well-known patient comes to you with an established diagnosis from a rheumatologist. So let's just say, which is probably a possibility, but we're, we're just doing a hypothetical here. Venus Williams, who has been open about that she has Shogun syndrome and I don't really know what she's been taking, but it sounds like she's been doing a lot of holistic things. But let's say she comes to Blum Health Center and she wants to know what you would do for her. Now, if somebody like her was on medications, again, I don't know if she is or not, what, what is your approach? Do you stop the medications when patients come in? Do you leave them on it who have, again, a known diagnosis, you know, whether it's, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or Sjogren's disease? Right. You know, do you also, are you looking at their blood tests? Are you following them as well? I'm just curious about your approach. So let's say she comes in. What we do right away is we work on a food plan, you know, okay. and work with what she can do, you know, but definitely the whole elimination diet and do a lot of, at the beginning for sure, and we do a lot of support and strategizing for a lifestyle with a lot of coaching to help somebody figure out how to, you know, eat this way. And, you know, the good news is that a celebrity person like that, can have plenty of support, right? So she can figure out a way to have someone help her eat that way, right? And so generally it's maybe even easier with people that have resources, you know, that can have a chef or have someone cook for them or provide the food. Would you stop her medication if she was on it or you would say, let's wait and see how you do? No, 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 no. Okay, so look, you never stop the medication. So an autoimmune person comes in, we never stop medication ever until we, we, the person's getting better. Here's the thing. Someone comes in, they're on medication already, they still have pain. They're right. still suffering. Otherwise, they wouldn't be coming to find me. Right. But you know, actually, a lot of patients, you know, a lot of patients will either come to me or you, and they're like, I don't want to take any more medication. And I think like you, I would say to them, okay, but for right now, you're not stable or you haven't improved. Well, you will start to put a plan in place, but I'm not right. deserting conventional medicine if that's helped you. I never change someone else's prescription. Otherwise, all the doctors in my community I'm, I'm friends with, we're all supportive colleagues, even though I'm practicing functional integrative medicine and they're conventional, they know that they can share patients with me and I won't change their prescriptions. So what happens is person comes in, we start working together and someone, the first thing we do is we do a stool test and we see what's in there, what needs to be treated. We start working on treating the gut, which everyone needs to some degree or another. The treatment plans are slightly different depending on what we find. There's always a core of herbs, but some people need H. pylori treatment, some people need parasite treatment, some people need candida treatment. That's a little bit, I'll move into prescriptions for a lot of those things. And so, you know, we start working on treatment and as somebody gets better and just anti-inflammatory 
Maybe the omegas, they're not taking any fish oil. Maybe their inflammatory markers are really high and they really need to change the diet and get more lower inflammation in the body just through food and nutrients, you know, that they're missing. So high-dose fish oil and, you know, the, you know, really working to bring balance and bring the pain down and help them feel better. And as people feel better, they go back to their own doctor and say, I've been working with functional medicine. I've been working with Dr. Blum. I'm feeling so much better. My markers are better. My inflammatory markers are lower. My numbers are improving. I feel better. Can we taper down on some of my meds? Like, can we make a plan? And they, I send them back to their rheumatologist to make the plan. I never change someone's prescription, but I empower people with sort of the conversation, you know, and I always send them with a copy of my book. I'm like, bring this book to your rheumatologist. Here you go. <laughs> and tell them we've been working together and that you're feeling better and ask them, you know, if they would support you in starting to taper off Well, let's talk about something that I think is also very interesting, too, because, again, in, in the field, and that's I enjoyed spending time with you when I was up at your office a few weeks ago. You know, there's certain tests that functional medicine and holistic doctors do that typically the conventional doctors don't do. For example, the comprehensive stool analysis or the SIBO breath test or heavy metal testing, you know, things we were discussing when I was up with you. What do you think about mm-hmm. the comprehensive stool analysis? I know Dr. Oz loves, you know, loves poop. He loves poop or he doesn't? No, he does. He, he's always, well, he's always talking yeah, with the patients. Yeah, of course he does. We've he's always like, how are you pooping? Years. You know, but, but you're actually looking at and, and, you know, trying to figure out, do you see, I know we were looking at it together when I was in your office, you know, things like butyrate and different things, you know, is there anything that, I mean, should patients be requesting this or trying to find out more about, you know, what's in their stool to better understand their microbiome and their gut? You know, absolutely. And there's some direct-to-consumer, you know, stool testing kits that people can get as well. I do I do think stool testing, but, you know, you sort of do need somebody to help you interpret it. And so I do think it's good to find an integrated file. You can actually go on the website for the most, the easiest stool test to find that's been around for the longest time, really with the most with the best solid data because they've been doing it for the longest is called Genova Diagnostics. And if you go to the Genova website, I think it's gdx.net, but it's also, you can just Google Genova Diagnostics and look up their GI effects stool test or any of the tests. You can do find a practitioner on their website and you can find a practitioner in your neighborhood who actually has an account with them and uses mm. their testing. And I've had people find me through their website, through Genova. And so you can go online and find someone, and sometimes it's a chiropractor or a nutritionist. It doesn't have to be a physician. And find someone who is experienced in this because this, what the stool test will tell you, it's not like in your conventional doctor can send out your, your stool for like parasites, over and parasites, right. but they're just looking under a microscope to see if they see it on that random sample. What the next generation stool tests are looking at now, they're, do, they're looking for the DNA. They can probe the stool in one sample for the DNA of different parasites and, micro, and, and microbes that we could never know were there before. And so we're learning a lot more. So there's, there's a way to assess the microbial population, which is really helpful. There, and looking for bad bugs, you know, looking for bad things, you know. It doesn't tell you the location. You know, SIBO is more of a location where there's an overgrowth in the small intestine as opposed to 90% of the microbes should be in the large intestine. And some people, they pile up in the small intestine. That's why that's a breath test, which is a little different because you want to see if it's piled up, you know, in the upper part of your small intestine. 
But the stool test tells you the microbial population, but it also gives you markers that are reflective of the general health of the microbiome. And that's where, when you just mentioned something like short-chain fatty acids, you know, butyrate is the most powerful one for the immune system and for healing the, the tight junctions of a leaky gut. The, um, and for supporting the mucus barrier, I mean, butyrate is so important. It's a kind of short-chain fatty acid. And these are just when the bacteria eat and ferment the foods you eat, the plants you eat, they make these things called short-chain fatty acids, which are secondary messengers and help the immune system, help the local ecosystem of the gut function, and, and they feed back and feed the bacteria themselves. So they're really, really, um, really supportive compounds. And so you can, you can measure markers for inflammation. You can measure how well your enzymes are working, digestion, the digestion process in the gut. It tells you a lot. It tells you about function, you know, and right. here we are with the word functional medicine. The difference between, one of the differences between conventional medicine and functional medicine is that in conventional medicine, we're looking for a disease, right? It's a disease model. Let's see if you have this disease or not. And the definition of wellness is you are well if you don't have a disease. The right. absence of a disease means you're well. That's the definition of wellness. Whereas in functional medicine, we're assessing function. And, you know, we believe and I believe that the definition of health is having optimal function, vibrant, you know, cognition and activity and energy levels until you drop dead at 95. And so if we really want to have optimal function, and that's just about function. And so if you really want understand that every, it's a, there's a, a whole sliding scale where there's the gray zone where the function, you have Im, impaired function is the first thing that happens before disease happens. We have to move into the functional model of assessing someone's health. How are you functioning? Not do you have a disease. And so the stool test allows you to assess the functioning of your gut. I just saw a really lovely 19-year-old yesterday who's been having terrible stomach aches, gas and bloating, pain, abdominal pain every day, freshman year of college, so much stress, came from another country, new food, and she ended up being taken for an upper GI endoscopy and a colonoscopy. They found nothing, a little gastritis. Her symptoms are so like SIBO, mm. small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, is really a functional problem. Right. There's, you know, and the impairment in the microbiome is a functional problem. And for her, it's probably all triggered by long-term stress and a change in her diet. But you have to be. And so she was told there's nothing wrong with her, and there's nothing. No one could figure out why she has pain. I mean, what a sad thing for a poor young woman to be sent home with nothing to do but being given a prescription for Prilosec. Right. We see this all the time. And I thought I just wanted to bring up, too, you know, the New York Times, the Tuesday Science section, had a very important article last week on April 9th. It, the title was, You're Covered in Fungi. How Does It Affect Your Health? And essentially what yeah. the research was finding, it was actually from UCLA Cedars-Sinai, uh, David Underhill. He was showing that they're finding a lot of fungi in the gut that, appears to cause inflammation and they're finding associated with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And yep. it really is bringing this whole thing full circle, how fungi like candida, in this case, it was melazacea. It's hard to even say. I know that sometimes diabetics are prone to this, but it all basically points to that in rebalancing the microbiome with through herbs or I use in my practice antifungals, you know, I start to see like you do that, you know, the patients who are having these undiagnosed bowel issues start to get better pretty quickly. And I think it's just really important. Again, patients typically won't get this from, quote, conventional practice. 
and even conventional gastroenterologists. So I think that's why they're searching for functional medicine practitioners. You know, and that leads yes. me to like as we're winding down the last question, why is it? I get this question all the time because I'm sure like you, you have patients that come from long distances. I've had people coming to me from out of state they're saying, "Why can't I find a doctor that's practicing holistic or functional medicine where drugs are the first line treatment?" How, how do you answer that to your patients? Where drugs are not the first line treatment. Well, I'm just saying how do they find how can they go about, well, you know, why aren't more doctors practicing functional medicine or holistic medicine? Yeah. Is it because it's not right. taught really in the, as, as part of the core curriculum for medical students and in residencies? Yeah, I think that medical schools are just embedded. It's, a, it's really our society. It's the way, our whole model for, for healthcare is, like I said, built on this disease model. And I believe that there are, I think we have a movement now that is definitely, look, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. There was nobody doing it when I started. And so, and you too, we've been doing this a long time. And so I think that the number of people that know what functional medicine is, is has multiplied 10 times. So I think we're making a lot of inroads. We have Cleveland Clinic now that's actually an integrated functional medicine center at Cleveland Clinic. There's research being done there. The pro, you know, we have to provide, we have to start, you know, produce more research that shows what we're doing and, and how it's effective in order to win over the larger swaths, I think, of the conventional medical establishment. Yeah. And I think we're just the new specialty on the block That's and right. we have to win people over. I think the other problem is the insurance model yes. and that um, insurance rewards doctors for doing procedures and for not spending time with patients. And the functional approach is you have to spend time with patients. There's so much we have to learn about them and treating the whole patient. And so I think our insurance base, our insurance system is stacked against us. The medical, what's rewarded is stacked against us, and the amount of research, because we don't use pharmaceuticals, and who who funds research studies? You know, yes. it's all pharmaceutical companies. And so, you know, we don't have the underwriting for the for the studies as, as well, you know, yeah. as historically for the past 50 years conventional medicine has. So I think that uh, times they are changing. I understand why we, we're here at this moment. I understand why this is so now. But I do also believe that there is momentum and wind behind our backs. I will add, though, to the issue that as a functional medicine community, we are struggling to figure out how to have you know run sustainable practices. You know, yes, that's I have true. colleagues, you know, I have people that are struggling to make ends meet, you yeah. know, as functional practitioners. and. Right to get people in through the door and communication, yeah. Yeah, because the hospitals are not really so behind. The hospitals aren't behind it. Right, so. and that's a huge but there, problem. But you can find them, though. You can find them, I and know. it doesn't have to be a physician, like I said, yeah. you know. Well, in conclusion, what I want to say, my own impression is that holistic and functional medicine are here to stay. I think the public's going to demand yep. it. Finding a medical doctor that can combine holistic and conventional medicine can be a challenge, but it's well worth it for the listeners. I want to thank Dr. Susan Blum for coming on the podcast today, for sharing her knowledge and experience. This is what the Smartest Doctor in the Room podcast is all about. I would love to hear from listeners on their comments, thoughts, and any questions. You can go to my Twitter handle, at Dean Mitchell, MD, and I will try to answer as many queries as possible. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Blum. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.